0: Do you read Stephen King? Good news. There's a club for you. The Losers Club. And guess what? You don't have to die at the hands of a shape-shifting clown to join. No, all you have to do is tune in every Friday as us losers journey through the never-ending wastelands of King's Dominion. Each week, we'll either spend hours reading between the pages of one of his books or chew on his latest tweets and Hollywood
1: headlines. What's more, we're always having guests over. Thomas Jane, Mick Garris, Jerry O'Connell, Mary Lambert,
0: Will Wheaton, and the list goes on. So what are you waiting for? Join us as we read on through long days and pleasant nights.
1: Consequence Podcast Network. Discography is brought to you by Reverb LP, a marketplace for used and new music. Vinyl, CDs, tapes, even reel to reel. With buyer protection and impeccable selection, if you're looking to complete your discography, there's no better place. Shop for music on the go with the Reverb LP app, available on Android and iOS or find them online at lp.reverb.com.
0: Hello and welcome to Discography. I'm your host, Mark with a C. I'm not only a lifelong record geek and not only the host of this year's show on the Consequence Podcast Network, but I've also been releasing lo-fi pop records independently for nearly 20 years now. Discography is a show where we look at a great artist through the lens of only their canonical albums of first-release material to see who the music says that they really are and how it all stacks up. Discography aims to educate and inform those listeners who really want to know. All opinions are that of the person that said them because everything is subjective. Discography can be a pretty personal journey for me, which you should know up front. Let's get going. Episode four. Welcome back. We're still on The Who. Yeah. Talking about The Who. Gonna be talking about The Who for quite a while. And I'm going to warn you up front. We're going to go into some pretty heavy territory in this particular episode. Now where have we been so far? since I've said this is episode four of season three. Well, of course, we started in 1964. Kit Lambert, Chris Stamp, discovering a band called The High Numbers at the Railway Hotel, deciding to take them on to manage them to success and hopefully eventually make a movie out of the whole situation. And then we covered albums like My Generation, A Quick One, The Who Sell Out, Tommy, Live at Leeds, Who's Next, Quadrophenia, plus... Pretty much every solo endeavor taken on by Pete Townsend, Roger Daltrey, John N. Twistle, and Keith Moon up to around 75, 76, we left off with Roger's third solo album, One of the Boys, which I actually found to be the most enjoyable of his solo records so far. That's not to say that the first two are bad, they just perplex me a little bit. And we're about to go into some territory where it's not quite a Pete Townsend solo album. It's more like him and a buddy got together and sort of made dual EPs at the same time and then slapped them on the same record. That's right, I'm talking about Rough Mix. Let's go ahead and just jump into it today, shall we? Rough Mix is often referred to as Pete's second solo album, but the album from September of 1977 isn't really that. It's a collaborative release by Ronnie Lane, Uh, from the Small Faces, and Pete, sure, and I've even heard it referred to as the drunkest album ever made, though I can't remember where I picked that up. Story goes that Ronnie wanted to co-write with Pete, and that wasn't Pete Townsend's jam, so instead, they each brought in a few songs, would sing here and there on each other's tracks to make a duet or two, and did some instrumental jams in the interest of actual collaboration. In so many ways, it's the polar opposite of Roger's One of the Boys album. Like, here's a clutch of famous people, not just the stars with their names on the cover, but also John N. Twistle, as well as Charlie Watts and Ian Stewart from the Rolling Stones, Mad Mouth, Harpist, Peter Hope Evans, and, hey, what do you know, Eric Clapton again. But they showed up with maybe a few songs each, not a real direction, and few real expectations on anyone's part, yet they somehow ended up with an album that's quite loose, but has more focus in even the more improvisational stuff than... Roger had even mustered on some of his records. I feel kind of bad for saying that, but... (laughs) I'm not lying. And I'd started to wonder if I was playing favorites here, too, because... Like, I don't dislike Roger. I mean, how could I? He's what arena rock vocalists are all about. But here I was finding new adjectives to praise John's solo records. And even on the rare occasions when I think I'm not quite getting what Pete Townsend's up to, I can at least find a window to peer into and get some joy out of whatever he's on about. But each record with Roger's name on it, and I seem even more confused about what his whole deal is, So before I get to rough mix proper, I just want to assure you that despite having collected pretty much everything I could get my hands on by any member of the Who over the years, I'd actually just never really dove into Daltry's solo work in any big way, and frankly, I kind of figured I'd like them just as much as John's records. I'm as surprised as you are that I'm struggling a bit with him, but the whole reason that I mention this now is because when I played Rough Mix right afterwards, I noticed that while Ronnie Lane's songs are pretty cool in like a rootsy 70s way, I found myself unable to really connect with literally anything attributed to Ronnie via a writing credit. And as this album has less excuses to work than one of the boys does, I can't really beat myself up because though Pete's clearly around on this album, even when he isn't singing... I just don't find much to connect to here besides our hero from The Who. And I know it's irrational, too. Ronnie Lane was freshly diagnosed with multiple sclerosis at the time, but he was writing, singing, and playing at such a high level, I had no idea about that situation until I read about Pete inadvertently knocking Ronnie down in his autobiography. Meanwhile, his contributions here, while maybe not what I was personally hoping for, are stunning and honest when all is laid bare and the circumstances are considered.
2: I have tried, but I never have won Because there's way to run when Michael's rolling
0: But there's still that nagging question of, why do you make an album when you both aren't 100% on working together? Neither Pete or Ronnie seem to have agreed upon anything, and their sole shared writing credit is just a jam session that gave the album its title track. But listen, when Pete applies himself to his writing here, I mean, really applies himself, there's just no getting around the fact that he's completely knocking it out of the park. Keep Me Turning is a great example of this. It's a tune that Pete brought in for The Who to consider for The Who by Numbers back around 75, but I'm going to guess it was another track rejected for being too personal. Meanwhile, the fretwork is mostly silky and glassy acoustic work, framing one of Pete's most universally spiritual lyrics.
2: They say that the trick is to walk in like you walking out lots
0: were in glasses now keep me turning up, keep me up, keep me now not everything Pete touches turns to gold here though the first cut is called my baby gives it away and it's kind of the epitome of what one might picture as generic 70s rock, but meanwhile, he's also churning out restrained stuff like the song Misunderstood, a tune in which our humble narrator begs to let his duality exist without interruption. And it's so unbelievably honest that Pete might not be talking about himself at all, which I've noticed tends to be the answer whenever someone might get a bit too close. You'll never fail if your aim is to be misunderstood, but when you're cranking out tunes of this quality, self-sabotage might be attractive just for the mere danger. can't handle it
2: the way I am. Why am I so straight and simple? People see through me like I'm made of glass. Why can't
0: I deepen with graying temples? Am I growing out of my class? one thing you probably didn't expect was that Pete would commission an entire orchestra for the six-minute epic called Street in the City.
2: See that man going in the bank with a blue suit he's carrying a bag full of very important paper there's old Mac trying to busk with his new flute
0: did you read about the Cambridge Raper? And because the songs and moods seem so segregated from each other, it's positively jarring when Ronnie and Pete join their voices together for an absolutely outstanding track called Heart to Hang On To, especially when that's framed by so many boogie-woogie tunes elsewhere. Now, as I said when talking about One of the Boys, I assume that the only excuse anyone needs to make a record is just wanting to make a record and while rough mix is pretty cool it's not my favorite moment in the who's saga but i place it well and far above some of the last roger platters because frankly at least it sounds like these people are having a very good time making rock and roll where uh, on roger's records i mostly hear a guy showing up for work but perhaps the most notable thing about the solid but not totally essential rough mix album is one particular name in the credits a gentleman named John Rabbit Bundrick. He's not only the piano player from the soundtrack of Rocky Horror, and his credits of the time saw him working with names like Johnny Nash, Free, and Bob Marley, but this guy really impressed and inspired Pete. And while Rabbit might not ever join the ranks as an official member of The Who or anything, his tenure of working with Pete was only beginning. back in 1975, a Who fan who was maybe 20 or 21 at the time named Jeff Stein approached the Who and their management about an idea for a film to put together as many representative clips of the band that could be located, slap them together, and basically let it tour for the band. It took a demo reel to prove to the group that it was a worthy endeavor but The Who and Bill Kerbishley went full steam ahead on the production of the film that would come to be known as The Kids Are Alright. However, Mr. Stein ran into a pretty big problem. As the band had kept an on-again, off-again ban on cameras and recording equipment through most of the 1970s, not only were there huge periods of time that would go unrepresented, they couldn't locate usable versions of pretty much anything from even Who's Next. Jeff Stein did his due diligence, even dumpster diving and hoping... You know, he'd find forgotten and discarded material, which actually worked sometimes. That's how they found some of the reels that were shot at the London Coliseum in 1969, but mostly to no avail. Pete had pretty much written off life on the road at this point. He had come home from tours to find that his daughters didn't recognize the strange man in the house, and you can imagine what a number that must have done on him emotionally, right? Yet somehow, when Jeff Stein realized that he didn't even have a definitive live version of Baba O'Reilly to include in the film, he somehow pulled off the Herculean task of talking the band into getting back on stage for at least one show. That gig took place in December of 1977 at the Kilburn State Theater around an hour of pretty shambolic music was captured. It was claimed that John Entwistle was intensely drunk, and even Roger, who's usually the rock during shows of this period, completely loses entire verses. And that said, when the band dispensed with the set list and went into some more old school jams like summertime blues, they seemed to really catch fires, despite clear indicators that Keith Moon was kinda struggling to keep up. <laughs> The footage was eventually deemed completely unusable and was scrapped for nearly 40 years. Of course, a shambolic who can still lay waste to the work of nearly any other band from this period, and when they scheduled one further concert at Shepard Studios for fan club members in May of 1978... Well, the set list may have been even shorter than the hour that the band had barely eked out at Kilburn, but they pulled it together for a few blistering renditions that some consider to be the definitive versions of the aforementioned Baba O'Reilly, as well as Won't Get Fooled Again. These performances are electrifying, and we're lucky that they were even captured at all, as this would be the last time that Keith Moon would appear on a stage with The Who. Period. (laughs) The album called Who Are You made it to store shelves by August of 1978, and it's a strange little bugger. And the folks that dislike it, they're not shy about telling you so. But just listen for yourself, because to these ears, Who Are You might be running neck and neck with Who by Numbers as the most underrated album by The Who, and certainly one of the most underrated albums of the 70s. <laughs> But first, it's important that we understand the circumstances and the situation. The elephant in the room seems pretty easy to pick out, but no one was really having a good time. John Entwistle would remark that he often Didn't even know what to add to the songs that Pete had brought in. Pete Townsend had sliced his hand open. Roger Daltrey had to undergo throat surgery in the dead center of making this record. Producer Glenn Johns had ticked Roger off to the point that Daltrey cold cocked him due to production decisions. John Rabbit Bundrick was supposed to make his debut as the band's new keyboardist, but had drunkenly fallen out of a taxi and broken his arm, and... Keith. Remember when I'd mentioned that Keith didn't do a lot of playing when the band was off the road? His physical condition and lack of preparation became clear to all parties in the session when he was unable to play 6-8 time for the otherwise brilliant and moving song, Music Must Change. And instead of modifying the song, they simply didn't use any drums, kept in some tasteful cymbal hits, and if one listens carefully, you can hear that they've replaced Keith with Pete's Squeaky Shoe. Sometimes at night I wake Basically, it's kind of a wonder that the Who Are You album was completed at all. And there's little else like it in the entire Who canon, and frankly, it is so much better than its reputation. At least it deserves better than it gets. But Pete definitely knows when he's spinning his wheels, he's not shy about it, and in the synth-laden opener, it's called New Song, he lays that all bare, literally spelling out that he's going to rewrite prior hits with a few new words, and you're just going to have to be happy with what you get. He even makes good on that promise in the bridge, referring to a few who hits back to back. front with you right? John Entwistle contributes three tracks here, the first of which is called Had Enough which is not to be confused with the song I've had enough from Quadrophenia and was actually the first single released here. There's lots of harmonies, a devastatingly angry vocal from Roger, the return of John's brass, and such a loud string section that one has to wonder if they were trying to cover something up. It didn't do too well as a single, but it's an excellent second track for this album and a refreshing return to form for John after the Mad Dog album. And he's also the party responsible for the sci-fi stomper called 905, which John would later claim was part of an unfinished concept album he was working on and Keith keeps the rhythm surprisingly straight ahead. The backing track reminds the ardent Who fan of the one found on the relay, and it's an exorbitantly catchy number.
2: in my head.
0: the song is so catchy that I kind of had to assume that some type of internal politics must have kept this relatively unsung Who track off of the 1978 airwaves. Meanwhile John did get another crack at a single from this record in the form of Trick of the Light. <laughs> Now this is another one sung by Roger, which wasn't always how things used to go. In fact, in the earlier days, John would intentionally write songs just outside of Roger's vocal range, so he would have an excuse for vocal spotlights on albums. But this one? I have to imagine that it was just John's dark sense of humor to write a song with the lead instrument being an 8-string bass and lyrically, being about a guy wondering if he'd sexually pleased the sex worker he'd just been in bed with. I mean, what's the use to handing your song to someone to interpret if you can't have fun with hearing it back, right? With that, Pete would describe this song as a musical Mack truck and it's certainly one of the most driving tunes here. More controversial was another song so catchy that I'm also floored that it wasn't marketed as a single, Sister Disco. It will serve you well to remember that 1978 was the height of Disco Fever, and that meant for Died in the wool rock fanatics, it was also the height of the Disco Sucks movement. And while this track doesn't take any discernible stance on the genre one way or the other, Keith is really shining on this one, the hook sticks in your head for days, John's bass work is completely mind-blowing, the synthesizers they are just taking on a life of their own courtesy of Rod Arjun, and Roger, well he's sounded a lot more gruff than usual throughout this album but he picks just the right voice to straddle the musical fence that Pete was writing. Kinda wild that this tune ruffled feathers when you actually look at it pound for pound. I mean, this thing even comes with a built-in reference to Tommy. I think that the songs that most likely turn people off most from this album are buried on side two. One is a really beautiful, yet kind of sappy sounding, dramatic piece called Love Is Coming Down because, yes, it is an amazing and beautiful piece that you can kind of get lost in, and it was quite in line with the demos that Pete was making for his own upcoming solo work at the time, but when someone mentions that Who Are You doesn't always sound like the Who, if they name check this tune, I can't really argue. quite obviously I can say that there's say a world of difference between I Can't Explain and the music on Quadrophenia but when I consider that Pete is still writing for those pilled up teenagers at the Gold Hot Club back in 64 still writing lyrics for whatever their station in life might currently be it seems nitpicky for any listener to decide what the Who should be and I doubly feel this way about the equally derided track known as Guitar and Pen which is possibly the most jaunty and Broadway inspired song in the entire Who catalog there are so many peaks and valleys in this song alone that if you get bored look up the sheet music to this track for people weaned on rock and roll This song about a writer's guide to writing is actually quite musically complex and when you take into account just how difficult and different Pete's new songs were in comparison to say, the more rootsy, who-by-numbers material, I have to wonder if all the stories about Keith being unable to perform in the studio during these sessions were equal parts substance abuse as well as, well, these aren't exactly Frank Zappa compositions, but they're not exactly Louie Louie and Johnny B. Good either. I know my way around a few instruments myself, and the music on Who Are You is just not obvious or easy. The arrangements are as rigid as those found on Quadrophenia, and there's a chance this stuff might have just been over Keith's head. I don't know, I'm just spitballing here. I'll say this much, I've seen more than my fair share of Who tribute bands in my day, but I've never seen any of them take on any tune from this record beyond the title track, and I personally feel that that speaks volumes. But wait! We haven't even talked about the title track yet. Well, who are you? Who
2: are you? I really want to know. Who are you?
0: Tell me, who are you? Who are you? So the story goes on this one that Pete was a bit dismayed at the burgeoning punk scene. Sometimes there are claims that he was inspired and excited by it, But on at least one night, he drunkenly approached two members of the Sex Pistols, got even more drunk with them, begging them to just push him off his kingly rock and roll throne or something. Later, just like you hear in the song, a cop notices Pete slumped over in a doorway, says something along the lines of, If you can tell me your name, I won't put you in the drunk tank, so who are you, Pete? A six-minute classic rock staple was born and most people were none the wiser that it was actually built off of a Sufi prayer. On September 7th,
2: 1978,
0: Keith Moon passed away in his sleep after an overdose of medication that was supposed to be helping him kick his alcohol addiction. It's one of the greatest losses in music history and he was a mere 32 years old. I have to pause here to uh, admit that I'm actually kind of internally fucked up after telling you about Keith's passing and learning about it and reading the stories about how he'd call Pete each night just to tell him that he loved him. This sweet and troubled man? Well, I'd never actually had to deal with his passing because by the time I'd heard the Who, he was long gone. People spoke about him like a distant memory and I'd only sort of pieced bits about him together but certainly never in any type of chronological way. Though he's a very lyrical drummer, it can be hard to really feel like you've got a grip on who Keith actually was, relying solely on the records, the interviews, and the way he played drums. But when the picture of the Who Are You period is painted accurately, nobody really comes off looking all that well. And the idea that this madman with an exceptionally fragile side was faced with his seeing best friends unable to do their jobs if he wasn't playing well and then reading record reviews about his diminished ability, it absolutely breaks my heart. When I got to this point in the research, I was unsure if I even wanted to continue the project, but I couldn't figure out exactly why. So I called Cap to run the situation by a fresh set of ears, and it's Cap's feeling that I'm actually in mourning. Finding the human in a larger-than-life being is a pretty heartbreaking thing sometimes the very fact that The Who could continue working at all after losing such a complex but important person blows my mind. But make no mistake, though Keith was the heartbeat of all that we have known as The Who, he's a human being. And it's that fact that is often glossed over so commonly that it's still startling to this 40-year-old man on some level that Keith Moon was mortal and that he was hurting and that he died from more or less trying to do the right thing. Oh, he certainly wasn't a saint, but he was a human with practically supernatural abilities. And it's my hope that he's found peace, and that wherever he is, he knows that he is greatly and deeply missed.
2: And over here, the guy plays the sloppy drums. (laughs) Follow the yellow brick road. What's your name? Keith. Keith. My friends call me Keith. You can call me John. Okay, John. I'm going to. Yeah. i just soon call you Roger. Okay.
0: By the summer of 1979, WHO fans the world over would have a chance to celebrate and mourn Keith as Jeff Stein's nonlinear documentary about the WHO premiered The Kids Are All Right. In my estimation, it's pretty much the most exciting rock film of all time and is to musical documentaries as live it Leeds is to any average live album. It's exciting to watch them as youngsters, to watch the explosive Smothers Brothers appearance, to watch the history of rock music just basically peak at the E chord during their performance of the song Sparks at Woodstock, and to literally see the last notes that Keith Moon would ever play with his friends in the closing Won't Get Fooled Again. The soundtrack album has a few songs that don't appear in the film and vice versa, but when you consider that throughout the 70s the band was known as the most exciting rock group one could see in concert, yet until the release of this soundtrack, there were around less than 10 officially released live songs by The Who. Less than 10. And I'm being generous here. So in 1978, getting such explosive live versions of Baba O'Reilly, Anyway, Anyhow, Anywhere, and My Wife? It was pretty much manna from heaven. But for my money, the biggest treat, the biggest highlight on both The soundtrack album and the film though is finally getting to see and hear the performance of a quick one while he's away that scared the Rolling Stones so deeply in nineteen sixty eight that they'd scrapped their very own plans and frankly it's just a better compilation and starting point to represent a lot of the various vibes that the band had over the years. Well, assuming you don't want to hear many songs after nineteen
2: seventy two, (laughs) of course.
0: Switching gears just a little bit. Pete had actually done one solo gig in 1974 at the Roundhouse in the UK. He'd done a few non-Who appearances here and there on stages, and he'd even graduated to playing with a completely different band altogether at a benefit called Rock Against Racism. He'd make an appearance in the concert film The Secret Policeman's Ball, performing Won't Get Fooled Again with John Williams. Yes, that John Williams of Star Wars fame. And the men who
2: spurred us on Sit in judgment
0: He stayed busy appearing on a strange little single on Stiff Records by an 11 year old singer named Angie, who would later go on to singing some backing vocals on the Buggles classic, Video Killed the Radio Star. And though Pete didn't write this one, it feels like the poppiest and simplest version of Mehir Baba attitudes and teachings yet. And Pete's contributions are absolutely unmistakable. He That odd little tune is known as Peppermint Lump, and uh, Pete would also even do some duet concerts with harpist Raphael Rudd at his own Oceanic Studios, playing gentle versions of Bargain, The Seeker, Drowned, and more to an audience of Meher Baba devotees. These gigs would eventually see the light of day around 2001.
2: None you beyond compare, and none can measure you. Without color, expression, nor form, nor attributes, to lay.
0: Meanwhile, in the Who's camp, a decision was quickly made to make Kenny Jones Keith's permanent replacement. And as he'd come from the same mod scene as they did, having been the drummer for the Small Faces, and he'd even filled in for Keith on certain parts of Ken Russell's Tommy soundtrack, it seemed like the right decision to all parties at the time. However, this decision to even carry on at all would prove to be a controversial point of contention for many fans of the group, and it wouldn't be long before the three remaining original members of the Who wondered if they'd made the right decision as far as their choice of personnel went. But first... In late 1979, the film adaptation of Quadrophenia hit screens all over the world, and just like the albums, it was a very different vehicle than Tommy. While it took some liberties with the pacing of Jimmy's story, it was praised for really capturing the essence of the mod lifestyle and the scene from which The Who had been born. Of course, it also came with a soundtrack album, and that would seem pretty weird considering that the movie had learned from Ken Russell's mistakes and instead used the original studio versions of these songs. Or, well, it kind of did. In actuality, to technically constitute itself as a different album, the band had to change Quadrophenia by at least around 25%. And As one might imagine, that's not the kind of thing that was going to make Pete jump for joy. Instead, John Entwistle sat down with the multitracks of many Quadrophenia tunes to completely remix them from the ground up. Some changes were relatively small. For example, as much as John was praised for his blazing one-take contribution to the song The Real Me, he decided to do a whole new bass part. And some songs might just get some extra echo added, while in the case of say Love, Rain" or Me, a full-on string section now coded it, while Helpless Dancer was whittled down to roughly 30 seconds. But what you really want to know about are the bonus songs. That's right, no less than three new songs to add to your Quadrophenia Saga. My personal favorite is the Pete song, Four Faces, which seems to really boil the story down to one single song, but also does does so in such a lighthearted way compared to the rest of the material, so it's easy to see why it wouldn't have fit with the vibe of the original quad. with Kenny Jones on drums, they first premiere here in the form of two tracks, the first we'd hear out of what the band might sound like with a different metronome, and those tracks were Get Out and Stay Out and the especially perky Joker James. an album, and now two films to promote, the new Look Who hit the road, and truth be told, they were back on stage actually doing a full-blown tour by May of 1979, less than a year after Keith's passing, and this time they'd instate John Rabbit Bundrick as their full-time keyboardist, if not ever actually an official member of the band. Most fans and critics gave the shows rave reviews, praising the vim and vigor that the group would throw themselves into with each gig as if they finally had something to prove again. Unfortunately though, disaster struck on December 3rd of 1979, when 11 fans were trampled to death trying to get into a horribly run arena in Cincinnati, Ohio. The short version of the story is that there were thousands of fans waiting to get into a show that was running very, very late, and when a single ticketed door opened during a last minute sound check, and some folks heard it, they were under the impression that the show was beginning while they were stuck in a crushed queue outside. Mob mentality took over. The doors were rushed, 26 souls were trampled and injured, while 11 fans never came home. The Who were not told about the situation until their set was over out of fear of a riot, and to say that they were utterly destroyed by the news is a massive understatement. The normally stoic Roger burst into tears as Bill Kirbishly broke the news to him, and when news spread that the band had played on despite the tragedies, many folks blamed the band themselves for being callous. Some shows were outright canceled due to safety concerns. The band would forever change their general admission policies at their gigs, and it was an absolute blow to Pete Townsend, who was already dabbling in multiple substances at this point, leaving many in The Who's organization to surmise that he was about to follow in Keith's footsteps sooner than later. Despite being in pretty clearly bad shape, he'd still gamely make it through a concert in Chicago that was simulcast in cinemas all around the world playing quite well, but by the end of the year in some benefit concerts for the people of Campuchia, Pete's condition appeared downright frightening to some with the eyes to notice. And somehow, in the middle of all of that, Pete Townsend would still pull off arguably his best solo work yet, a work so solid that many would claim that Pete was holding back his best material for himself rather than his band, a practically perfect album named Empty Glass. It dawns on me when we start talking about Pete Townsend's Empty Glass album released in April of 1980. Why, even though we've had two projects that appeared to be solo albums by Pete, this one is often considered to be his first real solo effort. And when I thought about why that might be, the only answer I've come to is that Pete had always been writing for other people most times. He's always writing with the strengths of the members of The Who in mind. But what does Pete need to say when he's all by his lonesome? A lot, as it turns out. Let's just get this out of the way. Empty Glass is a brilliant and bordering on perfect record that, to my mind, belongs in the same breath when we talk about the great works like Tommy, Who's Next, and Quadrophenia. And as many people would refer to this as the great Who album that never was, up to and including Roger Daltrey, I don't think I'm totally off base with that feeling. And get this it's not even my personal favorite Pete solo album, but hey, let's talk about it! That's pretty clearly the strains of the song Let My Love Open The Door, one of the most enduring tracks Pete would ever write, and a song that charted better in most territories than nearly any other single that The Who had released in the prior decade. And what seems like a boastful and bragging love song is really just a spiritual parable. See, the idea of much of empty glass is that if one assumes that God is a bartender, you'd not belly your way up to the bar and ask for a drink if there's already something in your cup. The bartender can't refill it until you show up empty. An empty glass would be a heart ready to receive the love of God in this case. But even if you decide to take the spirituality out of it, assuming it's a thing you can never unknow, it's still a pretty beautiful love song, isn't it? However, addressing the elephant in the room, I was once one of those folks that thought Empty Glass not being a Who album was a real missed opportunity, and later it would dawn on me that Roger often sounds like he's singing from a place of like ego and libido. Where Pete might not be the most technically gifted vocalist, his emotion always stays transparent and even gentle, and sometimes he goes from a roar to a whisper and back again, and I I simply can't imagine a delicate track like I Am An Animal working on any level if Roger had been the one to interpret it. But Empty Glass gets compared to the Who's work so often, especially when people talk about how Roger would have likely never sung anything as seemingly homoerotic as Rough Boys, even though Pete was really just getting at how the uber tough looking punk rockers didn't seem to notice that they were actually wearing bondage gear. Tough boys! There's so much going on here in these 10 songs that it's practically unfair to give all of the attention to Let My Love Open the Door and Rough Boys because let's face it if you've made it this far in this season of discography you are probably well aware of those tunes as they were certainly the most widely played songs from this album and though Empty Glass may not be a concept album per se it's definitely got some thematic linkage that only becomes apparent when heard as a piece
2: and I saw him standing in the doorway.
0: Moved, with its synth arpeggios and breezy instrumentation, is often singled out for its overtones about romantic and physical relations with another man, something that wasn't exactly what the average Who fan would be expecting or potentially even open to hearing about in 1980. But it's their loss because it's beautiful, an absolutely gorgeous song and one that Pete claimed at various times was written for female singers, once even stating that it was for Bette Midler, but that doesn't seem all that plausible to me. Because no entertainer would receive a song of this caliber from Pete Townsend and not release it immediately, and I think I like it better on this platter than I might have when hearing it from someone else's voice. It's also worth noting that Pete has played fast and loose with gender roles dating as far back to the 1966 single I'm a Boy. So if you were surprised or offended by And I Moved, it's really between you and your God. There is some genuine anger here in the song Jewels and Jim, which is a response to the book called The Boy Looked at Johnny, written by Julie Burchill and Tony Parsons, which purported to be an obituary of rock and roll. And in the book, they state in a paraphrased manner, fuck Keith Moon, we're better off without him. Decadent so-and-so driving Rolls Royces into swimming pools. If that's what rock and roll's about, who needs it? Well, Pete fired back with lines like, morality ain't measured in a room you wrecked, And they don't give a shit, Keith Moon is dead. And that's one of those magic moments when you see and feel the genuine feelings of Pete Townsend, the human being, being risen to the surface. Sure, he might be in the profession of rock and roll, but that. He also doesn't have to take diminutive statements about his dead friends lying down. The resulting song is the most scathing piece that Pete had offered since Potentially Won't Get Fooled Again
2: pushes in a room
0: Pete's growing emotional maturity shows when he takes a gentle approach to the bridge on the same song pointing out that they likely had some common ground too aside from what had ticked Pete off so righteously but I- The album's title track was actually a castaway from the Who Are You album, and the existing take of the band trying it on for size sees Pete taking lead vocals, which again makes it seem like these songs were far too personal for Roger to feel comfortable singing and standing behind. So in the song Empty Glass's original incarnation, it seemed downright suicidal. But here, in what became its final form, it's a very moving yet driving song along the lines of the self-deprecation and imposter syndrome, first checked around the time of the Who by Numbers in tracks like However Much I Booze." It's also the only secular rock song that I've ever heard that uses the word Ecclesiastes, so bonus points to Pete. But the real emotional crux of the album, and as far as I'm concerned, where Pete's writing was going in the future, is a song buried in the middle of side two called A Little Is Enough. I smile, synth, there's guitar, four four-time signatures, nothing out of the ordinary, right? But after a particularly intense row with his wife, Karen, she denounced that she didn't love him anymore. At all. He eventually got her to admit that she loved him at least a very little bit, and based on his spiritual lessons from Mehir Baba, it was decided that this wasn't a problem because, well, a little is enough. And as long as something is done with any amount of love at all, it's certainly going to be better than the alternative. Plus, these are some of the most moving and genuine lyrics we've heard from Pete in a long time. He sounds positive that he's onto something here, and he's not wrong. Everything you've ever heard about Empty Glass being not just underrated, but also on par with the very best two material, from composition to performance? Pete considered himself to be a vocal virgin at this time, according to his autobiography, and as he'd never had to carry an entire album with his own voice, it doesn't show because he sounds defiantly comfortable and he switches gears with ease, always able to serve the songs with just the right amount of vigor in his vocalizations. And it should be mentioned that Pete was finding himself surrounded by a clutch of musicians that he really liked and would go on to do some projects with them that were much larger in scope. Kenny Jones appears here playing drums on Rough Boys, John Rabbit Bundrick is responsible for the bulk of the keys. Pete was absolutely smitten with the harmonica work of Pete Hope Evans, hardly ever making a move without him in tow from now going forward, and interestingly a gentleman named Simon Phillips, who would later occupy a sizable place in Hoot Lore, plays drums on more than half of this album. The musicians were just right, the production was dead on, and despite the addictions that Pete was battling at the time, dabbling in nearly every substance under the sun, up to and including crack cocaine, he sounded ready to take over the world on empty glass. The only thing I can say against it refers to fan reaction, and that's what I'm gonna state right now. You ready? <clears throat> Excuse me. There is no universe where Empty Glass would have been better as a Who album. It might have been very interesting, but even as a hypothetical, I don't personally see much room to improve it. Okay, maybe the closing song Gonna Get You doesn't need to nearly be seven minutes long. But that's it. There's nothing else to complain about. Pete made the best record he could muster at the time, and to many, it was his last genuinely great moments. I think there's still plenty of greatness left in the tank, but those attitudes really speak to the power of empty glass. We all know Pete's a good writer, vocalist, instrumentalist, and anything else you can name, but this was the first time that the public would have definable proof that he was proudly capable of doing this all on his own. And that seemed to be an increasingly attractive idea, to Pete at least, based on what the future had in store, but I'm getting far, far, far ahead of myself. Instead, let's talk about the real album from 1980 that is pretty much an unsung Who album, but only billed to one member. If you're thinking to yourself, Mark, while I appreciate that you're even covering the soundtrack to the film McVicar that came out on Polydor Records in June of 1980, but don't you think this is getting a bit nitpicky? Well, hold on to your butts, because here's the deal. The musicians on this album are Roger Daltrey on vocals, Pete Townsend on guitar, John Entwistle on bass, John Rabbit Bundrick on keys, and Kenny Jones on drums. Sure, a few supplemental musicians drop by, but when you face the facts, this is basically a Who album that no Who members wrote any part of. And are you ready for the real shocker? It might be billed as a soundtrack album, but this is absolutely Roger's best solo work yet. Bar none. Period. End of story. And judging by the credits on Wikipedia since... They're missing from my copy of the vinyl. The band isn't always playing together on everything, but there are definitely songs here that are unmistakably in line with the new Hoover sound, like the opening song Bitter and Twisted is ever so vaguely reminiscent of a much angrier take on the tones heard in, say, Joker James from the Quadrophenia soundtrack. A
2: psychopath.
0: gut tells me that those extra musicians I mentioned, the they're likely playing on some of the incidental music from the film about the titular train robbing John McVicker, portrayed in the film by Roger. Tracks like the two versions of the flute and synth driven Escape, for example. Those incidentals were actually written by Jeff Wayne of War of the Worlds fame, too. But when you've got an actual honest-to-goodness song with words and music here, There's just no way to argue that this is as solid as a Roger solo vehicle has ever been up to this point. I'm even going to go as far as to say there's absolutely no excuse at all that some of these songs didn't do pretty well commercially. For example, Russ Ballard, uh, the band Argent, wrote a song called Just a Dream Away that had been perfect for adult contemporary stations at the time. my time is going to come, which might be a bit one note, or at least that's what I thought at first, but as it grew on me, it's kind of reminiscent of some of Alice Cooper's early 80s dabblings with new wave and simpler song structures, and now I'm really into it. Actually, there were some bona fide hits here. There's an almost grating rocker called Free Me, which, like the title track to One of the Boys, is littered with just enough winking nods to Who songs that it's just a little cringe-worthy. But meanwhile, there's just the right amount of sap in the Billy Nichols penned song, Without Your Love.
2: If I could
0: touch the stars, where would I be without your love? The track that shocks me most here is called Waiting for a Friend.
2: When you're by the roadside, waiting for a friend to come.
0: It was released as a single that never even cracked the top 100 on the singles charts. This is everything. Everything that I want out of a Roger Daltrey solo track. There's a great hook, his delivery matches the melody and vibe, and it's catchy as all get out. The instrumentation is cool and slick, leaving room for Roger's voice to stick out with the rough edges and grit. I can't come up with a single reason why this song wasn't at least a minor hit, and frankly, if Mick Vicker were to ever be recognized as the Secret Who album that wasn't billed as such, this would clearly be the go-to track, but... Uh, who compilations? That's a whole different topic. Don't even get me started. You
2: laugh, you think it's a joke. Just stand there.
0: McVicker is upfront about being a soundtrack album, so it's predictable that the pacing might be a bit all over the place, but it still holds together as Roger's best work outside of The Who to date on strength of material alone. It may not blow you away, but this one is totally worth a listen. It's a real grower, and because of the limbo sort of state it exists in, it can't be described as anything but underrated. So, way to go, Roger! Oh, and remember that oddball thing called Flash Fearless versus the Zorg Women? It actually finally opened in March of 1981, but best as I can tell, it was maybe shown a few times at best and then completely forgotten. Better late than never? I couldn't tell you, as I've never actually seen it. Besides, there was much bigger fish to fry as The Who prepared the release of their first official album without Keith Moon, which we're going to talk about in just a second. So, thank you so much for listening to Discography. We're not done with this episode yet, but we got to throw out some links, and these links matter. Do you want to hang out with Discography online? Great. Facebook.com slash Discography on CPN. Or you can just type Discography into the search bar until you find a page that kind of looks like this might be the one. Also, don't forget, CPN is the Consequence Podcast Network, and we offer so many cool shows. There's This Must Be The Gig, there's Loser's Club, there's Halloweenies, there's Filmography, which is sort of our sister show, but if, if I'm being honest, I've never actually heard it. And the reason I haven't heard it is because I've been so busy with discography that I haven't had a chance to, but that's neither here nor there. Outside of podcasting, I, Marco C, release independent lo-fi records and have been doing so for nearly 20 years. I do this… well for myself, but then when I think something's kind of cool, I put it out just for you. It's only
2: like a low-rent show. Now
0: that's just a hint of a song called Low Rent Truman Show. It's off my most recent album called Obscurity. I went to Canada to record it. It was produced by Jordan Zadarozny of Blinker the Star. It was mastered by Kramer, who you might know from the band Butthole Surfers, or Shockabilly, or Bongwater, or all the albums that he mastered by Daniel Johnston, or Ween, or Lowe. Anyways, Obscurity might be the best record I've ever made. Personally, I think it is. And if you want to check it out, you can hear it at MarkWithAC.com. You can get it on vinyl or compact disc or heck, maybe by the time that you're hearing this, the cassette version might be out. Either way, if you want to hook up with what I do musically, I would really appreciate it because, well, you know facebook.com slash mark with a c music if you want to hang out with me on twitter that's probably the best place to get some actual direct back and forth with me i'm at mark fi on twitter that's m-a-r-c-f-i as in there's hi-fi lo fi mid-fi and mark and finally of course I am working on some stuff for the future, podcasting and independent records don't pay all the bills, but sometimes fan support really helps me get the stuff done that I need to without being late or completely overextended. And if you want to help me make the book that I'm putting out for my 20th anniversary or the 20th anniversary compilation that'll be coming out late 2019, hopefully, fingers crossed, knock on wood, you can go to patreon.com slash mark with a C and you're going to get all kinds of cool stuff in return. Seriously, it's probably the most active Patreon you've ever seen. This has been Links That Matter. Let's get back to the show, shall we? Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down.
1: You have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com/slash host. Hey, this is Cap, CPN Network Director. Mark and I bond over a lot of things, but most of all, music. We both obsess over it together and dive deep into nuanced collections of rare records to get that bigger picture. You probably know how it is. One day you realize that a bunch of your favorite records all have the same producer or session musician, and the next thing you know you're on a wild goose chase for rare records hunting down more of those sweet sounds. Or say there's a band you love, like The Who, with an expansive catalog, different mixes of the same track, critical bootlegs. That's why I'm so excited that this season of Discography is sponsored by Reverb LP. You might know Reverb as an incredible music gear resale marketplace. Well, Reverb LP is their marketplace for used and new music. Buy records, sell your records so you can have money to buy other records. They have an impeccable selection, which you can scope out online or even better via their app, which is available on Android and iOS. In fact, if you're looking to start your Who collection or fill in some gaps, we've got a virtual bin for you to flip through. Just go to lp.reverb.com cos and you'll see all the records discussed in this season. Reverb LP offers buyer protection so you won't ever have to worry about a bum deal. And say you're hunting down an unofficial release, rare tracks, bootlegs, you'll find them here. As far as I'm concerned, and this is me speaking like 100% personally, Reverb LP is the marketplace for record collectors. Download the app, scope out the store, or browse this season's discography at lp.reverb.com cos. Now, back to Mark.
0: Face Dances was the name of the first Who album with their new lineup, released to the world in March 1981. And This one is a controversial little bugger, and to be frank, most of the Who material from here on out is going to have an equal amount of fans and detractors. Face Dances is an easy one to complain about because it's a pretty radical departure, and it must have really seemed like a star left turn at the time. I mean, who could know what to expect with Bill Sismic behind the boards who happened to be the Eagles' go-to producer, with Pete intentionally bringing in the most varied material he could come up with just to change direction? It's all kind of a recipe for disaster, but I'm personally firmly on Team Face Dances, waving a number one foam finger for it, And I've got no time for those who won't look past the obvious and just trust their ears because Face Dances is nine really good songs with little precedent for this massive of a stylistic change anywhere in Who Mythology. I'm sure you'd heard that one before, right? You Better You Bet? Come on, that song was everywhere. It was one of the first videos ever shown on MTV. An ode to sexual frustration and rejection, possibly with some implications about impotence and performance anxiety. It's not just a catchy and synth-driven FM radio smash. With these topics, it's as if Pete is still remembering to write the type of things that those kids from the Gold Hot Club and the Railway Hotel might have been dealing with at that very stage in life. On the flip side, Though this would become one of the band's most enduring stage anthems and hits in general, Roger Daltrey was so famously unhappy with Kenny Jones' drumming on the tune that it'd take less than a year for him to refuse to even sing the song if Jones was present. The follow up single to You Better You Bet was called Don't Let Go The Coat, and this is where things start to get interesting. Pete brought the band the demo, the song was pretty reggae influenced, likely drawing secondhand inspiration from the police and the clash as so many rockers were wont to do at this time. The song itself is still built off of some Meher Baba teachings, but it's also a masterclass in hopeful ways to hang on during periods of loneliness. The song didn't do nearly as well as You Better You Bet, and its fate was likely helped along by John Entwistle admitting just how boring he found the song to be, but this is a point where I should also mention that this will be a recurring theme in this album, as when Pete first played those demos to the band and their management, he was met with an icy silence that would eventually lead to him angrily snatching the tape up and walking out wordlessly. A song that was a bit more highly regarded by all parties, including the audience at the time, was the album closing, Another Tricky Day.
2: It really it. it
0: no, it's got a bit of dance music in the feel, quite a bit of it, and while it appears to make a statement about a social crisis, it's actually quite in line with Won't Get Fooled Again and its fence-straddling lyrics, but that's something I'm going to touch on later. It's still a deservedly beloved jam.
2: It's all here on
0: I think it's assuredly bouncy stuff like the song Cash Cash that was so disarming for unprepared Who fans at the time. A literal retelling of the time that Pete found himself so fucked up from a mixture of substances and depression that he awoke to find that he'd somehow fallen asleep in the bear pit in a zoo and came very close to being mauled to death, but lucky for him it was an off season so there were few if any bears to be found. Those looking for the rockers though? You need look no further than John Entwistle's duo of songs from the album, The Quiet One and You. The former was written as a stage vehicle to replace the trio of songs that always seem to be the only options for John to sing on stage, Heaven and Hell, Boris the Spider, and My Wife. It's a rip-roaring pentatonic jam in E that delights in reminding you that John is not the quiet member of the group, he's just the most sardonic, and frankly, anyone who has ever seen or heard him live, they know he's absolutely the loudest member of the group. It would prove to be the biggest live highlight of this clutch of new tunes, allowing the band to stretch out and jam just like the old days. On the other hand, the song called You is a nice enough rocker, but it's likely the least impressive tune here. Musically it's still got that brute force thing going on that might initially attract younger folks to Who music, but other than just being a list of reasons why the narrator is angry at a woman, there's not a lot else going on here. Though its inclusion was likely at the behest of Kenny Jones, who reportedly pushed John to drop it from a solo album he'd been working on and save it for The Who, and as both Kenny and John were going through tumultuous divorces, well, it's pretty easy to do the math from there. But to my ears, the sleeper hit on the record is the chiming and jangly Daily Records. the song hits on plenty of well-worn territory for Pete, a receding hairline, being unsure how to relate to the youth of 1981, and a drive to write just for the sake of writing. It's something that I'm sure everyone involved could certainly relate to in an absolute crime that this was passed over as a single and is left to waste away, hidden on side two of an unfairly maligned album. A lot of the song takes place as Pete tries to look through the eyes, of his daughters at what he does and it has these amazing lines like when you're 11 the whole world's out to lunch face dances was actually just going to be called the who no seriously this was going to be a self-titled album and while it's probably for the best that they went a different route it's also fitting because this is the debut record by some guys that knew each other had worked together but had absolutely no idea where they were going for this reason, I feel that it should be pretty easy to forgive any perceived missteps on this album. For example, some find the song How Can You Do It Alone to be a bit too jaunty and perky for their tastes, but it's more natural than they'd likely believe, as it was a song that was first worked out during onstage improvisations during the 1979 tour. Like it or not, this is what naturally came out of the band calling themselves The Who at this time, so even if it doesn't always work, like say, the synthesized bagpipe section in the middle of the track. You can't argue that it's anything but honest. And really, face dances most closely resembles the layout of Who's Next. Please hear me out before you start polishing your pitchforks. So you got your big attention-grabbing hit right at the beginning with Baba O'Reilly. Your second tune seems just a bit Lovelorn, but is actually based on Meher Baba's teaching, just like Bargain. The fourth track is another John Entwistle vehicle to push the album into the stratosphere. The middle of the album gets into territory that doesn't sound like anything else they'd previously done. Daily Records is in slot number 7 as a fan favorite and a sleeper hit just like going mobile, and we close with another tricky day, another meditation on inaction that sounds like a bigger statement in context, just like won't get fooled again. That's not to say that face dances sounds a thing like Who's Next, nor is it really in the same category or level, nor would it be any better if it did. It's just the kind of thing that has historically worked for the Who and it must have been a big surprise when it was met with such a mixed response that continues to greet the album at every turn, up to and including today. Pretty much everyone involved with face dances had a personal life that was held together by duct tape at this point. That it defies the odds to even have been finished at all is a miracle unto itself. Roger would even publicly come around to admitting to enjoying the record as a simple breath of fresh air in The Who's discography by the 90s. It may be fashionable to dislike the records made during the Kenny Jones tenure with the band, but that doesn't mean the record itself is actually bad. If you got the ears to appreciate it, Face Dances is better than it's treated, and frankly, the next moves for the band might've looked a lot different if fans and critics weren't so hard on a group already always known for trying something new in the first place. It wouldn't dissuade Pete from pushing various envelopes, but the writing was certainly starting to appear on the wall. Albeit completely unfairly. The Who would tour for the Face Dances album through 1981, and despite the growing tensions and poor shape of some band members, many were still raving about the newfound energy in the band's live shows despite a major change in the group's live sound. See, Pete would begin using tinnier tones around this time while letting Rabbit's keyboards do much of the melodic heavy lifting. Still, the audience has lapped it up, the raw energy was off the charts, and a really good example of said energy can be seen in an episode of the German show Rockpalast. Ben was actually co-headlining with the Grateful Dead on that night and watching the German audiences completely lose it is totally worth your time if you ever run into the chance to check it out
2: I thought I was about to
0: Pete Townsend's steady decline into substance abuse was certainly no doubt amplified by the death of ex WHO manager Kit Lambert, who passed away in April of 1981 under tragic but hotly debated circumstances. And by the end of the face dance's promotional cycle, some in the WHO's camp wondered if Pete might not be the next casualty. Meanwhile, Anyone missing the brute force rock that was largely absent from face dances would get a chance to get their fix with a certain someone's brand new solo album. Because November of 1981 saw the release of John Entwistle's fifth solo record, Too Late the Hero. John himself admitted that he too saw diminishing returns in the 50s pastiches that had littered his rigor mortis and Mad Dog albums, so this time out he'd try something he'd actually never done for a long stretch on one of his own records just do some straight ahead arena rock and let me tell you if you have a soft spot for everyday 1981 FM classic rock this is an album where you're just gonna be thrilled by it if you're looking for the depth of his earlier stuff though you might come up a bit short but hey John wants to rock and who am I to stand in his way I'd be totally remiss if I didn't tell you that the guitar is handled by Joe Walsh, and drum duties are covered by Joe Vitale, and the extra slick harmonies are provided by Billy Nichols, whose name you've probably heard a few times in this series, and that won't be changing. There's some anti drug material in songs like Try Me. there's not quite as much dark humor present, but that's for similar reasons as doing away with the 50s throwback ties. John stated that he was tired of people associating his personality with the darker subjects he most often wrote about, but it turns out John's just as good as anyone at just making a straight-up rock record. getting Boris the Spider part 17, but it turns out that when John boils it all down to the meat and potatoes, his melodies can still shine through and penetrate, even if the material isn't likely what anyone necessarily actually is signing up for. That said, there's a really long and moody title track, a really beautiful tune with a soaring chorus that makes one wonder why this one wasn't pitched to the Who. Interestingly, this song was a minor hit in Italy from somehow getting tons of jukebox plays, which is just as surprising to you as it is to me to say out loud, but my understanding is that Genesis was exceptionally popular in Italy, and as portions of this track sort of remind me of Peter Gabriel era Genesis sounds, it's maybe not as far-fetched as it seems. I'm just There's a slow and lurching fan favorite here known as Love is a Heart Attack that might be closest to what someone might expect lyrically from John, but the groove is clearly the heart of this track. And on another note, completely different song, if the idea of John taking a pot shot at disco scares you, well, it's John. So of course Dancing Master is going to be from the perspective of a sadistic teacher that's really training you to dance yourself to death. But it's the extended bass solo workout duel in the middle that's absolutely worth the price of admission alone, making Dancing Master my indisputable highlight on this album. the Hero is lacking a bit in the substance department, and that's not really in question. But it's a solid rock and roll album with enough high points to be really enjoyable, but not QUITE as strong as John's first few solo efforts. No matter though, solid rock is solid rock, and this is delivered with superb and slick precision. And it's worth wringing every last bit of enjoyment as you can from it because... It'd be John's last solo release for a very, very long time. But not the last solo release from a Who member by a country mile. For a band that was fracturing long before the public was really let in on the turmoil, there really did seem to be a flurry of activity from The Who's camp in a short period of time right around now. Pete Townsend's next solo release, All the Best Cowboys Have Chinese Eyes, was released in June of 1982, just months apart from a new Who album. So either Pete had a glut of new songs at his disposal, or he was working overtime to run a few parallel careers. His newfound clarity likely wasn't hindered by his newfound sobriety, and while it helped make his new album one of the most razor-sharp entries into the pantheon of new music released in 1982, Despite respectable chart placements and a few videos that did okay on MTV, people were mostly unprepared for what was going to lay in these grooves. Critics panned it outright. I can't imagine that it was what anyone thought an album with Pete on the cover holding up the very, very rock and roll-looking Flying V guitar. To outward appearances, the follow-up to Empty Glass must have seemed like, All right, Pete is gonna rock again! And then you drop the needle and...
2: Love born once, must soon be born again. A spark that burned and died, leaving cinders to be fanned by the wind and thrown to flame.
0: I'm sure that doesn't sound all that odd to you, but at the time, Pete is still predominantly thought of as Mr. My Generation, Mr. Baba O'Reilly, Mr. Magic Bus, and then here comes something that might not be out of place on the Talking Heads soundtrack to True Stories, though that was a few years off, coated in more synthesizers than Pete had ever put in one place before. This album is without a doubt a true distillation of Pete Townsend in 1982, but it may have been his audience who wasn't ready for such a drastic lane change though it's the type of move that people like David Bowie would be praised for. But each time a member of the Who tried out a new thing, there was often a few years of the audience catching up to it with as much warmth as one might hope so or remember. Simply put, though, All the Best Cowboys Have Chinese Eyes is an absolute masterpiece, but it's not at all what one might conjure up in their heads when they hear the words, Pete Townsend Masterpiece.
2: Being richer than a king the, of the day were i when the joy passed round. My body felt a
0: that's the strains of the glorious and deceptively complex ballad the sea refuses no river a tale of the larger love of consciousness accepting all forms of living and breathing attempts at goodness even when you feel completely out of gas it comes complete with some of the most rad key changes you're ever going to find, and some of Pete's most moving, philosophical, and spiritual lyrics ever committed to Wax. No river. When a Pete would later joke about the song being rather dreary, as he seemed to remember having a great time on heroin. Oh, Pete. Anyways, elsewhere you're gonna find the oddly timed song called Face Dances Part 2, which is reportedly unrelated to the album, face dances by the who and when you hear the hook you certainly would have your mind blown that it wasn't a massive pop hit at the time elsewhere there's great tracks like exquisitely bored and communication where they mix pete's especially dense and complex arrangements with a newfound lust for blending in spoken word poetry which apparently didn't thrill the label at first and again i can see why it might not be exactly what anyone signed up for or expected but it makes perfect sense in the context of the album. Fifty radios playing in this
2: street, but I'm still hardly Exquisitely born in California We
0: take our trouble to the caress. There's a song called Uniforms, which was a minor hit in the UK, and while it also repeats the trend of being totally unpredictable within the confines of expectations, it manages to be 100% singular while also hearkening back to all of the stuff Pete once wrote about mods and how their clothes had to be just right, but this time around, it's banks upon banks of synthesizers surrounding military marches and a total earworm for a hook. If you're familiar with Pete's personal life right around this time, the loss of his friends, his love interests, and obsessions that seem to control his every move, it becomes clear that the song Somebody Saved Me is about as blunt as Pete can possibly be about having survived his addictions, but it's even more intriguing when you find that it was actually a cast off from the Face Dances album initially. Meanwhile there's just no universe where this shouldn't have been an obvious pick for a single death, grief, sex, intoxication, it's all here hiding tucked away near the end of this 41-minute behemoth of an album, but I think that many would agree with me that Slit Skirts isn't just one of the highest of the highs here, but also another stellar entry into writing what those first Who fans might actually be going through by this point, assuming they'd grown along with Pete's Music and Muse, of course. Oddly, a totally different recording was released as a video, but for my money, the version that closes this album is one of the most specifically well-thought-out and explained stories of a couple trying to grow old gracefully, while the man's sex drive takes a nosedive just as his lady friends seems to be peaking, and all of the drama that is sure to follow. I mean, if you're nervous to even try out a new move on the dance floor, what are the chances that these characters would become more sexually adventurous and fulfilled? I personally can't sing the praises of all the best cowboys have Chinese eyes highly enough. It's practically a crime that it languishes away in dollar bins while containing so much misunderstood magic. And it's really the most logical progression from empty glass that could have happened. It's more challenging, but also more revealing, more rewarding, and less obvious. This may be my pick for one of the most underrated slices of Who-related material if not the most underrated. Critics absolutely hated the album, and few ever seemed to come back around for reappraisal. The mind boggles at what Pete might have been inspired to try next if this had gone over as well as Empty Glass had. Of course, if it had been a huge smash, things might have been very different for the future of The Who. Or wait, would it? I know, it seems like a weird place to leave off with a question, right? But that's going to be it for this week's episode of Discography. Because things are going to get really weird. Okay, look, I know the history of The Who is just generally weird when you go through it chronologically, but we're going to go off into a bunch of different directions on our next episode, spoiler alert. So I think for right now, this week, let's go ahead and stop where we're at. Let all of this sink in and see what is going to happen. Because we're kind of getting into the Wild West here. The Who weren't going to be a band for much longer, but they could never seem to say goodbye to each other. That's why we have so much more ground to cover. We're not even close to wrapping up. friends. Discography is a production of the Consequence Podcast Network. It's engineered, produced, directed, you name it, by me, Mark with a C, right here in my home studio in Orlando, Florida. Of course, I got that boss, Cat Blackard, and occasionally Cat Blackard does call to yell at me for things that I'm not covering, and I'm pretty sure this isn't going to be the last time that it's happened, you know, that thing that happened last episode with Tommy, but uh, they are just over in the next room, so let's, you know, I'm going to keep my voice down now and pretend I didn't say any of that. But I want to thank you very much for listening. Reminding you that if you're having a good time with this season of discography, please, please consider rating and reviewing us wherever you found this. If it was iTunes or Podomatic or Podchaser or Gastropod, I don't know. I'm just making up things with, I don't know. Is there a podcast service named Two Peas in a Pod? And if not, fucking Why? Anyways, if you could leave us a rating and a review, that'd be great, but hey, even if those things don't float your boat, sharing these episodes with word of mouth, that does a lot as well, as long as the algorithms let you. But hey, even trying, it means the world to us. I'd like to quickly remind you that our background music is by alternately jordan mckenna who you can find at soundcloud.com just search for jordan mckenna m-c-k-e-n-n-a i'm sure you'll run into a ton of his stuff that's mostly the more beat driven material that we've played in the background and the ambient stuff that you hear when we talk about albums that's done by chris Abrisky. you can find more about him at chris for example the song you hear right now. This is the theme song to discography, and it's called Air Hockey Saloon off of his absolutely fantastic ambient record, Vendiface. Thank you so much for tuning in. Thanks so much for taking this journey with us. My name's Mark with a C. I'm so excited to continue this journey with you next week. So until then, I'll see you next time, my friends.